Welcome to another episode of Monday, Monday afternoon, theologian. And I do believe that we are live and in person. I'm Clark. Once again, I'm Rick. <laughs> Almost live. Hey, we're glad you're with us today, too. And Rick, what simple thing are we going to answer this time? Yeah, this is probably the simplest one that, uh, well, no, it's not. <laughs> the question we're going to look into today is simply, is Jesus God? Okay. Yeah, just a, a tiny little subject. This should be pretty quick and easy. No, it's going to take a little while. I believe that to sort of demonstrate Part of what we want to talk about today, you have kind of an, an anecdotal introduction that uh, we want to take a look at. A gentleman named Shane Claiborne, I believe, is the subject of your story. I'll do that. I uh, first came in contact with Shane Claiborne through a book my son was reading when my son was in college. And uh, Shane really had an impact on all three of my kids when they read his books because Shane is a radical and he's radical because he did some things that many Christians would shy away from. Shane, his hometown is Philadelphia, and he said that there were a bunch of his Christian friends that felt like if they were going to be Christ-like, they needed to reach out to some of the people that they saw who were being oppressed by certain laws. They were passing laws in Philadelphia trying to keep homeless people from camping out in the parks. They didn't want them sleeping at night in the parks. But they didn't have adequate shelters. So Shane thought, well, that's kind of not very fair. And what would Jesus do? So Shane and a bunch of his Christian friends did something crazy. And they started having communion every week in the park with their homeless friends. And by friends, I mean they really made friends with these people. They got to know them well enough that they were friends with them. And it turned out that they did this often enough that there were about 100 of these folks every week. And Shane realized that it was sort of a, a militant meekness because it was a meek defiance against a law in that city that to him seemed really unjust. There was this anti-homeless legislation, at least that's what some people had couched it, and I think that was a fair term for it. It was prohibiting sleeping in the park. So when that didn't deter them, the law that is, they passed another law that made it illegal to have food in the park. Now, let me ask you, why do we often go to parks? Well, you got to go picnic. <laughs> of course we do. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, and sort of ironically, the name of the park where all this started to come to the showdown at the OK Corral in Philadelphia, that was a metaphor. That wasn't the real name for it. But the name of the park was Love Park. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> in the city of brotherly love. So in the city of brotherly love, in Love Park, they were trying to shoo the homeless people away and didn't want them to have food in the park. So what do you have to have to have communion? Got to have bread. Got to have some sort of a beverage. Uh-oh. So that sounds like food. It does. <laughs> and that was exactly what Shane was thinking, too. So after a few weeks of having communion with these homeless people, recognizing that they were having a Lord's Supper, so that was food, even though it was just a little wafer and some juice and whatnot. 
But he thought, now nah, let's just take it a little further. So he said, let's bring in some pizzas. <laughs> so they started having pizza parties after communion. And the police started standing by because it was becoming a known occurrence now. The police were standing by during communion. They wouldn't dare arrest people during a sacred religious observance like communion, especially since there were a whole bunch of ministers and city officials present at the time. You can tell this is building up to something. Well, after a love feast in Love Park, Shane and his clergy friends started setting up tents so that they could camp out with their homeless friends. And they kept doing this week after week. And finally, after one of these worship services, followed by pizza, followed by camping, <laughs> police officers had no choice, and they surrounded the homeless people and their friends, including Shane, and they arrested them. And so when they showed up at the court hearing, Shane was wearing a t-shirt that said, Jesus was homeless. <laughs> and the judge who heard the case acknowledged that he had not been aware that Jesus was actually homeless. And then he said, among other things, but this is the quote that was in Shane's book. The judge said, let me remind the court that if it weren't for people who broke unjust laws, we would not have the freedoms we have today. We would still have slavery. That's the story of this country, from the Boston Tea Party to the Civil Rights Movement. These people, and he was gesturing to the homeless people who had gathered there in the gallery, are not criminals. They're freedom fighters. I find them all not guilty on every charge. <laughs> and then, to top it off, the judge asks Shane Claiborne for a Jesus is Homeless t-shirt. <laughs> I love that story. So the two questions that come up when I start reading a story like that about a radical who displayed crazy love to homeless people is, who was Shane Claiborne to these homeless folks? And secondly, why did they love him so much? Well, to answer the first question, who was he to them? He was somebody who got down into their world and shared life with them. He wasn't looking at them from afar. He wasn't peering out through binoculars from across the street. He didn't live in the suburbs and see them on the news. He was with them. And then secondly, why did they love him so much? Because a guy like Shane cared enough about them to advocate for them when nobody else would. He was willing to be labeled a criminal, in fact, because he stood not only for them, but with them. And he won their freedom. Does that sound like anybody else that might come to mind? Hmm, let me think. It kind of sounds like Jesus in his day. Ding, 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 ding. Which is pretty remarkable because that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Probably could have come up with that conclusion beforehand, but that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of people might ask, why did Shane think he needed to do these radical, these crazy things for people mm -hmm. that are you know, kind of pushed off to the, the margins of society? Well, I think that Shane provides some of the answer to that in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, Living as an Ordinary Radical. Shane says that he felt the need to do these things because that's exactly what Jesus had done for him, not necessarily with pizza, but in many other ways. And he wanted to be like Jesus. We start to look at, uh, was Jesus actually God or not? The reason I shared that story is that I think it helps us understand 
that there are three claims that Jesus made about himself which start to sound and look a lot like what Shane Claiborne demonstrated through this crazy action. And I think we could sum up these concepts in three items. Would you tell us what those three items are, these three concepts we're going to look at today? So the, the first one that we look at is Jesus made claims that no human could fulfill. Even though we know he was human, there was something else in the equation. Yeah. The second one is Jesus satisfied the penalty for sin, and only God could satisfy that. And we've talked about that a number of times on, on how it took something supernatural to actually pay the, the penalty there. And then Jesus became the final spoken word of God. Mm. And here's that first claim that he made. Jesus made claims that no human could possibly fulfill. So like what, for example? What kind of claims uh, are we talking about? Well, one that he did on a number of occasions, but we've got one of the stories out of Mark that we can use to really show exactly what he was talking about, is he claimed that he was able to actually forgive sins. So if he was just a man, that would be pretty tough to do. Yeah. But we're going to take a look at a time when he was in Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Mm -hmm. And there were many people who were coming to hear him on a regular basis. In fact, he was a standing room only in most times. And this was the case in this particular place. He was teaching at a house, and it was packed. Mm -hmm. But there was a paralyzed guy who had some friends that thought, you know, we've seen Jesus heal people. Maybe we can take our friend here and get him close enough to Jesus that he can be healed and he'll be able to walk. Mm -hmm. But there was no room. I imagine there were people standing outside you know, in the little courtyard there, listening through the open windows. And they've got the guy there, you know, probably four of them, one on the, the corner of the, of the little stretcher he was on. And they said, what are we going to do? Well, looking at the architecture of the day, he said, well, look, there's an outside um, stairway that gets us up to the roof. They carried him up there. They started ripping the roof apart, made a hole big enough, and they lowered him down right in front of Jesus. Now, that's kind of a strong commitment of friends to tear somebody else's house apart so that they can see about getting their friend healed. And the thing is, nobody rebuked him for doing that. God drops in. Jesus sees him, saw the faith that it took for his friends to do that. But he didn't say, get up and walk. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, yeah. he said that first instead of saying, hey, I'm going to heal you. He said, your sins are forgiven. Right, because he understood the faith that it took to do that. All of the people involved in, in that little escapade obviously knew that there was something more to Jesus than just a man. Yeah. Now, of course, the religious leaders were keeping tabs on Jesus at the time, and so they're seeing what's happening here, and they've got to be thinking, you know, why does this guy talk like this? Mm -hmm. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Now, Jesus, we're assuming at this point that he is God. He's reaching into their hearts. He knows what's going on. And he says, why are you thinking these things? And so he challenges them with a, a thought-provoking test. And he says to them, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk. 
And he's going to emphasize it here. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, speaking about himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home, which is exactly what he did. And of course, all the people are amazed because this area, they, a lot of them probably knew the paralyzed man, hasn't been able to walk for a long time. Boom, gets up, rolls up the mat, out the door he walks. Mm -hmm. Everybody is amazed. But how can he say, I absolve you of all guilt, especially yeah. in the order that he did it? I mean, yeah. any of us could have said that, but which of us had the actual authority to do it? I mean, it took that authority which he demonstrated afterwards, he's the only one in history who could say that. That's really fascinating because the order in which those things happen is really vital. And I remember seeing that with fresh eyes after hearing somebody teach about that a few years ago. And I had read that before, but when I got to thinking, what would these religious leaders be thinking about that? Of course, they, they all thought that if anybody had been stricken with some ailment like paralysis, it was because of sin. So that was their presupposition. And so Jesus started tackling some of the things that they might have even been thinking at the very beginning to say, well, first I'm going to forgive sin. But then they asked that big question, which was a good question to ask, who could forgive sin but God alone? That's kind of the point of this whole thing. <laughs> exactly. And, and I find it interesting that even though the people were amazed, something that supernatural was not foreign to them. The religious leaders would know, after reading all of the Old Testament, that supernatural things occurred. Yeah. But in other places, when those occurred, they said, oh, well, he must have a devil or he must be of the devil if he's able to do these supernatural things. Not even thinking for a second that he might be from God. Right. Interesting how they went to that conclusion after seeing such tremendous evidence in these miracles. They're just not even willing to entertain that as one of the evidences that he could be God. They completely went to the opposite side and said, oh, well, if he did something supernatural, that's because Beelzebub is behind it. Even though it was a good work, and we know that the demonic spirits would more than likely do something that was not necessarily good for humans, being opposed to humans, being opposed to God. So it, it makes you wonder why would they come to that particular conclusion unless they just couldn't handle the possibility that he might be who he said he was. Yeah, sounds like they had firmly made up their mind. They, they were those minds like concrete. They were thoroughly mixed and permanently set. <laughs> Absolutely. And they were unwilling to entertain any kind of evidence, even if it was eyewitness evidence. Right. They, they were just contrary to everything that you know, was put in motion through the life and works of Jesus at that time. And interestingly enough, this is a little aside, uh, our church gave us a wonderful gift. They gave us enough money so that my wife and I could go on a 10-day tour to Israel uh, about three years ago. And we got to see the house that they believe was the very house where this took place. And, they have a hole in the roof? Uh, yeah. It's, in fact, it's a big hole because they're just walls that are about four feet high and there's no roof at all. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be easy to let somebody down in there now. Yeah. So should we take a look at the second claim? Yeah. Uh, what is that second claim that we're looking at, Rick? The second claim is that Jesus was able to satisfy the penalty for sin that only God could satisfy. 
We'll take a look at a passage here. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And that was where he paid that penalty for all sin. As a result of that, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's to the glory of God the Father. Now, it used to be that when there was sin in the life of an Israelite, they had to pay a small penalty, you know, sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a dove, whatever they could afford, uh, shed the blood of the animal. So it was temporary. It was repetitive. Mm -hmm. But in Jesus' case, he did away with that because he, as an eternal being, made the permanent and eternal binding sacrifice, mm -hmm. what we would call a propitiation for our sins, and he paid that penalty with his own blood. And it was through his meekness that he demonstrated the heart of a God who demands that we be sin-free or cleansed from all sin, mm -hmm. but who also knows that we can't clean ourselves up. You know, he's the one who cleans us up by the shedding of his blood and washing us clean, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, which is all of our sin. Oh, that's good. I, I remember you were saying that about cleaning us up. <laughs> friend of mine who was from the South used to say that he'd heard some of these old preachers and they'd say, you know, you don't have to get rid of all your sin first before you get baptized. He said, because you try to clean yourself up before you take a bath. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> and he said, you just come to God the way you are and he'll take you from where you are and then you get baptized and then he'll clean you up. That's <laughs> <laughs> a little oversimplified, but I think there's some truth there that we can't clean ourselves up in our own strength or in our own effort. We have to say, it's because I can't clean myself up, so to speak, I can't become sin-free, that I need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit of Christ. I need to admit my sin and allow Him to forgive me, and He does the cleaning. Then, as we see through you know, a lot of the epistles, as we surrender to Him after that event, mm -hmm. then we're changed from the inside out, and we sin less, we... Uh, move in, in different circles, we behave in different ways, because he is making those changes within us. But it's all because of that initial event where he washes us clean from all unrighteousness. And then as we allow him to make us more like himself, then we become changed beings. That's so huge. It's good for, I think, people who might be new to Christianity to recognize that it's not a an immediate effect. I've talked, I think it was in the very last episode, in fact, about the time release capsule and that when we surrender to Christ, that's the beginning of that change. And then there's this, the Bible calls it the sanctification process where he's continuing to remake us into his own image. And that is a long process. And so for us to know that he's gentle enough to keep doing that, to clean us up and to keep cleaning us up, to make us more like himself until finally we can stand with him in our glorified state, because there was the justification when we finally accepted his grace, sanctification, which is the cleansing process, and then glorification when we're finally in his presence after we've left this body and our soul goes on forever. 
that all three of those things are a part of God's working in our lives. One is the initial state. The second is a process. The third is what we get to enjoy forever. God's involved in every part of that process. And everybody's path is different. You know, we've yeah. talked before about people that we know who were immediately delivered from drugs and alcohol. And, you know, as, as soon as that decision was made, they knew they didn't need that anymore. They dumped it all down the toilet and flushed it away. Whereas others, they make their decision. They go, I don't feel any different. You know, yeah. it's just like, um, I thought I was supposed to get something from this, you know, a mm-hmm. flash of lightning, something that says, now you're different. Well, the change was made, but it's manifest in different ways for different people. Absolutely. And we all have our path that we walk and it's individual. It's an individual thing that we all relate to Christ differently yeah. at every stage of our spiritual walk. Yeah. And that's yeah. the nice thing. It's a, it's a personal relationship, yeah. you know, us with him and he accepts us as we are and we grow to be more like him as we understand more about him. That's really good. It's very good for me to realize that God knows each one of us individually so well that my sanctification process may look a little different than some other believers' sanctification process. But he is still working on every one of us because he wants to bring us into that relationship that's so close to him that people can start to really see Christ in our lives through our character. And the character qualities are going to look the same, but how we get there may look very different for each of us. Exactly. Let me circle back around to those religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees for a second, because it seems like they were really camping out on doing instead of being. They were all about the checklist. You have to do these things right, and you have to avoid doing these wrong things. And if you can do the right things like we do, you know, they would use themselves as the example because they worked so hard at it then they would look down their noses at anybody who wasn't trying to keep the law the way they were keeping the law. And yet, Christ is gentle enough that he's going to be gentle in how he's going to be cleaning us up to get us more like himself. I got a story, in fact, if you got time. You got time for a story? Let's have a story. Okay. This is called the fish story. And I heard this from a guy who wrote about the need for gentleness as God cleans us up. And he was basing it on a scripture from Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus himself had said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That was not what the Pharisees were offering. That's what Jesus was offering. And this guy, whose name is Richard Dunnigan, wrote about one time that we parents can relate to. At their school carnival, one of his kids won four live goldfish. Free. And you know what free goldfish means? We have to buy a tank to put them in. He goes out, he says, on a Saturday morning after the carnival to find an aquarium to put these four goldfish that are in their little temporary camper baggie. (laughs) And he places these goldfish in this nice big 10 gallon tank that he got for five bucks because he didn't want to spend 40 to 70 bucks on the first few that he saw. So he saw this old one. It was ugly. It had a gravel and a filter, but it wasn't clean, but it was five bucks. So he thought, ah, I can afford to clean it up for myself for that price. So he brings it home. 
He cleans it up. He's sudging it right down, and he gets it nice and pristine looking. And the four new fish looked great in their new home, he said, for the first day. <laughs> but by Sunday, one of those four fish had died. Uh-oh. Too bad, but at least three remained. But, he says, by Monday morning, eh, there was a second casualty, and by Monday night, a third goldfish had gone belly up. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and he said, we called in an expert, a member of our church, who had a 30-gallon tank. It didn't take him long to figure out the problem. He said, yeah, what did you use to wash the tank? And he said, well, I used this really good soap there. And he says, oh, no. No, that's a no-no. <laughs> And the guy said, my uninformed efforts had destroyed the very lives I was trying to protect. Sometimes, he says, in our zeal to clean up our own lives or the lives of others, we unfortunately use killer soaps, soaps like condemnation or criticism or nagging or fits of temper. We think we're doing a good thing, but our harsh, self-righteous treatment is simply more than they can bear. Those killer soaps, man. Um, we see it in the, the the time of Jesus through the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. Yep. You know, as you said, they're looking down the nose saying, you're not doing the law like you're supposed to. That is translated the way we want you to. And so therefore, bam, you're going to be condemned by our words and, and because of your actions. That didn't really work. You know, that, that made people... Um, kind of rebellious against those guys. Mm-hmm. Happens again to, in, in our world still today. How many times has that condemnation or the, mm-hmm. the nagging or the criticism or all of those things been counterproductive mm-hmm. in the lives of people Then it turns them away from the church and all of the good things that God would have for them? Mm-hmm. Again, it's like we said before, you don't get cleaned up before you take a bath. You know, Jesus has already done the hard work. He just says, come to me as you are, and I'll take care of the rest. You know, I'm the one who took the penalty for the sin. Only God could do that. That's why I came to earth. I give up my heavenly status. I took the form of a human, and I did it the gentle way, and I'm coming to you, meeting you where you are, because my wrath is not against you. It's against the sin that keeps you from God. Yeah. That's something that we don't always hear in the message from the church. Mm-mm. It's God hates you because of your sin. No, God loves you in spite of your sin. And he provided a way to take the sin away because the sinners need the Savior. Mm-hmm. And by the Savior spilling his blood to cover the sin, the sinner can come to God in repentance and say, yes, I want what you have for me because your way is a better way. I really like that. I like the way it's worded, and I think it shows the heart of a God who would die in our place. His wrath is against sin that destroys humans. That's why God couldn't even look at his own son as his son was hanging on the cross, because Jesus had taken all of our sins upon himself. God cannot look upon sin because he's holy, which is why he wanted to provide a way back to him through Christ. So his wrath is against the sin that would destroy us. We parents have felt that toward our children. Sometimes we're so mad we could just shake them because of their sin. But it's because we hate that which would destroy them. We don't hate them, but we're hating the actions that they're doing because they're sinful, they're wrong, they're rebellious, 
and we don't want them to be self-destructive. And so it's the love that motivates his wrath. It's a two-sided coin. It's his love that draws us to himself, not his hate. So I like the way that's worded. And then his love is for sinners in need of a savior. That was me before I was saved. I know that he loved me because of Christ dying in my place. And I was a sinner and I got that. And I totally admitted that. (laughs) So when I understood that it was his love that put Jesus there, then I saw him very differently than some of these Pharisaic types that would say, oh, well, God hates you because you're a sinner. Yeah, we've seen that in action a number of times when the particular sect of the church is uh, proclaiming that God hates homosexuals and so forth in a very ugly, ugly way. Yeah. And they're, they're sending the absolute wrong message. Right. It's, you know, God doesn't hate anybody, you know, because we all have our sin. We all have our, our own piece of deviation from perfection yep. that puts us in a position where we require a savior. So um, mm-hmm. it's, it's the wrong message. I mean, the message that we've talked about so many times is God didn't intend for there to be sin in the garden, but he made a way for us even now, so many thousands of years later, mm-hmm. to wash away that sin and become clean and have a relationship with him that will endure for eternity as he originally intended. Yeah, that's good. And I I would be the first to stand up and say, there's a whole bunch of sin in my life that God is still working on to clean me up because I'm still in that sanctification process. And any one of my sins is co-equal with anybody else's type of sin, whatever that might be. But once we have started to get cleaned up by him, because we have started to lean fully upon him to start cleaning us up that way, we got to be aware that he's probably going to want to clean house in us. And there are things that he's cleaning house with me about. Uh, My pride and anger are two things that he continues to deal with me about because I come from a personality type that I tend to go real quickly towards certain anger issues. And I can, I can have a flashpoint that's pretty quick sometimes. And I dislike that about myself because it keeps me from allowing God's love to flow through me. It may be different with somebody else, and there may be some who would be surprised when suddenly God starts dealing with them about their specific sin, especially as they're reading God's word, and they say, oh, I think I see this now. He establishes these boundaries because he wants the best for me, and therefore, if I'm going to really walk fully with him, he's going to want to eliminate this from my life, and that's going to be tough for some of us because it's dying to self, but Rather than to pick and choose and have a checklist of which sins we're talking about, as unfortunately so many in the church have, we need to point people in the direction of Jesus and let him start cleaning them up from the inside out, as you have just mentioned. I think that's a much better approach. Well, and, you know, as both of us have seen any number of times, someone who is very critical of that sin, but mine is, it's not a big deal. Yeah. But the Bible tells us that if we've broken the law in one area, it Mm -hmm. is as if or it is the same as breaking all of it. You know, once we've sinned, it's as if everything was broken and we are totally unclean. And therefore, it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what the issue is. In his eyes, it's all co-equal. He doesn't say, oh, well, I can look at this sin a little bit. It's No, none of it is going to work. You've got to be cleansed of all of it. 
And if you're continuing in it, he's going to, as you said, he's going to point it out. He's going to say, we need to work on this because that sanctification process isn't finished. We need to keep cleaning up. Granted, the spills aren't quite as bad as they used to be, but they're still happening. So let's work on that. Yeah, so true. What is that third area that we were going to look at? Something that Jesus claimed that we find difficult for a human being to have claimed that we realize, oh, okay, he's claiming something that no human could have done. What was that third thing? The third one is Jesus became the final word spoken by God. So if we take a look in Hebrews, it says, long ago, God spoke many things in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. So before there was an intermediary telling the people as a prophet, this is what the, what God says. Now, God himself, Jesus, is saying it directly to us in the time that he was living. Kind of sounds like what we see in the Gospel of John, where the word became flesh and was dwelling among us, and Jesus was God in the beginning. So he always has been, always will be, has always been part of that triune Godhead. Mm -hmm. So again, from Hebrews, God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son he created the universe. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sin, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And this shows us that the sun is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. So we see that the name above all names, he's greater than the angels, he's greater than the humans. He is the final spoken word. If we need a fixed point, something that we can, you know, that's, that's tangible but immovable, mm -hmm. he would show us what God is like more clearly, that Jesus is that immovable, that tangible point. In fact, the writer of, of Hebrews said that we must fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Ooh, I love that verse. And I've got another story. Of course you do. <laughs> Of course I do. Uh, this story comes from a real experience about fixing my eyes on something because a guy in our church named Tom uh, bought a mower that he keeps at his house, but he uses it to help mow our church property because we haven't built a building there yet. We've been very nomadic for years uh, because we think that people are more important than property and buildings. And so we've been taking a long time to get to that point. So we've got a, a large piece of property. It needs to be mowed. We planted a bunch of grass in a play field, which our kids get to use from time to time, and we have picnics on it and stuff. But he got one of these uh, mowers with two levers on it so that you can spin it right around, and you can really make them turn quick and go right around tight areas like around trees and shrubbery and stuff. So he was trying to give me a little tutorial, <laughs> but I found that it, I felt like I was going... Wow, all over the place when I first started that, because it can go really fast for one thing, but it doesn't take much of a a turn to make that thing go. And he said, what I found is that if I can keep one of my elbows against the armrest and keep one of those things completely firm and then just make small little corrections with another one, go left here or go right that way instead of doing both, because when you do them both, it's like, woohoo. <laughs> but he also said that there's this drift and you tend tend to zigzag. 
if you're just looking straight ahead of you. He said, you need to pick something, an object, an immovable object, a long way away, like across the creek, a house down there, or a pine tree or something, and aim for that and fix your eyes on that. It makes it a lot easier to be making those small adjustments because you're looking at something down the road. And I did that, and it made a huge difference. And I thought, oh, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across. We tend to drift all over the place. And the Pharisees had drifted into this legalism. And we can drift into some other form of spirituality or whatever. But if we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, he's the final word. He's the one who's meek enough to do the work necessary to clean us up, to pay the price of our sin on the cross. Instead of yelling at us to clean ourselves up, he says, no, let me show you how it's done. I'm going to pay the price for you, and then you just trust me, and then you fix your eyes on me, and I'll show you how to be more and more like me. Ah, It removes so much of that floundering that people have when they try to do other things in their own strength and call it religion, and it's all about the relationship with Jesus. Now, it's interesting you use the word flounder. So there's another example that we can look at, uh, <laughs> not in, as in the fish, but in the floundering around, and that was when Simon Peter thought that it would be a good idea to get out of the boat and walk on the water with Jesus. I see what you did there with flounder. <laughs> Jesus sent his disciples across the lake. Uh-huh. The storm came up. And Simon Peter's looking out at the storm, and he sees something kind of coming towards him. And it's just kind of unusual because it was a person that was actually walking on the water. Mm-hmm. And... At first, the guys in the boat are going, I think there's a ghost out there. And then Peter was thinking, well, maybe it's Jesus. And he said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Now, he would have been really surprised if it was a ghost and the ghost said, come in, and he flopped right in the water. But (laughs) instead, Jesus gave him a simple one-word response. He said, come. So, Peter, at that point, having great faith, over the side he went, walking on the water towards Jesus. And he's just looking at him going, this is kind of cool. I'm walking on the water with Jesus. And he's just looking at him right there, and the storm's raging all around, and he starts to take his eyes off. He's looking at the storm. He's watching the lightning. He's hearing the, the thunder. Waves are splashing around him, and he begins to sink. It's not a good position for Peter to be in. Took his eyes off the the prize. He took it off Jesus. Jesus was more than happy to have him walk with him out there in the water. But he took his eyes off and he starts to sink. Kind of uh, freaking out at that point. I would be too. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a great analogy. And it's so parallel with what the writer of Hebrews said, in fact, because he was meaning that as long as we continue to keep our eyes fixed on that fixed point, the immovable object who is for us Jesus, then we won't sink in our lives, not like we would if we're straying and, and putting our eyes on our circumstances instead of on Jesus. And I think that's a really good physical reality for Peter that becomes a spiritual reality for us in our walk with Christ. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. He's walking on the water. He starts to sink. And then he gets his, his mind back around what's going on, and he says, save me, Lord. Jesus, of course, reaches out, grabs him, but says, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? 
He says, this was supposed to be something really good for the two of us, but you doubted me. But Jesus also at that point demonstrates his power over the creation, uh, which you know we see a, a number of times. Um, you haul Peter back in the boat, the waves die down, the wind stops blowing, and they look around and go, he can do that? You know, they'd seen all the miracles before, but now they're going, this is on a grander scale. And just like the crowd who saw the paralyzed man walk, they were struck by the power of Jesus and they worshiped him. And again, they're talking about the reality that they're seeing before him, that they say, you really are the son of God. More eyewitness evidence. And they're, their eyes are opened to something that they probably can't really even imagine. I mean, it's a dawning upon them because we we see later in Matthew when Peter talks about him being the Son of God, it was a process for them to start to understand that. Yeah. It shows me his graciousness and patience too because he seemed to show them many times this kind of supernatural power, especially over creation, and they started to warm up a little bit to that. And it seems like that their minds, in the way they were phrasing things, as you work your way through the miracles, they start to have a little better clue. But they still didn't until the very final biggest miracle of all, which we're going to look at toward the end here. But Jesus is so patient with them because he rewards them when he can, when they say the right things. And then sometimes he'll say things like, "Ah, you still have pretty small faith. <laughs> you still got some learning to go yet. But I love these stories because they show how loving and patient God just really is. And when we need it, he saves us and lifts us back up. And he's revealing himself to those people. Yeah. God the Father has sent the Son to be that for them. And he's starting to reveal that. And he reveals spiritual truth to us. And even though we have a lot of evidence to help us in the search, there's, there's truth that helps to answer that question. Mm-hmm. But we can't get there by reason alone. You know, there's you know, reason takes us so far. We we spent almost a whole episode on talking about reason and faith and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people, you know, even a lot of, of religious people that have a pretty high opinion of Jesus. Mm-hmm. They may not go as far as to say, well, he is God or he is the son of God. But they say he was a good teacher or he was a prophet or he's a good example of how you should live your life. But they won't go quite so far as to say, yes, Jesus is co-equal with God. Yeah, that's true. I, I've seen something when we were in Israel, that trip that I told you about, we were in the area called Caesarea Philippi, up near the base of Mount Hermon in northern Israel. And that was a region where Jesus was asking some of his disciples what the other people were saying. He was getting feedback. And it was not an opinion poll. He just wanted to know what specifically are people, what do they think I am or who do they think I am? And he actually asked them, he said, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, which means he would have had to come back from the dead because John the Baptist had been beheaded. Others say Elijah, again, it would be like the ghost of Elijah or some sort of a manifestation of a dead person. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, still another manifestation of dead people. (laughs) He says, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? So they saw that there was something supernatural about this guy, but he wanted to know who they thought he was. And Simon Peter is the one who said the right thing. He said, well, you're the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. And that's where Jesus was able to commend him for that because he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Peter messed up a little bit later, very shortly after that, and said the wrong thing too. But at least right here, he says the right thing. And Jesus used it as a teachable moment to say, you didn't figure this out by reason alone, Simon. The reason you were able to come to this conclusion is because God is revealing himself to you, and it's because of God and his spirit that you got it. And that's why I think it's so good for us to understand that we can see all the evidence in the world, but if we're not open to the spirit of the Lord revealing these things to us, we're going to discount some of the very evidence that Jesus is offering. And it's interesting that a lot of the people, I mean, there was a lot of miracles done. There were a lot of people who saw a variety of different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was revealing to them. It was the abundant evidence that, that Jesus wasn't ordinary. There was something supernatural about him. Yeah. And he did a lot of these in public, and they still didn't believe that he was God incarnate. And they surrounded him in, in, in the temple courts, and they demanded to answer you know, him to answer as to his identity. They asked, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is in the work I do in my Father's name. It's pretty darn clear that he's saying, you know who I am. You've seen it. And they still didn't get it. A little bit later, we see through all of that, that he could control creation. He could do miracles, and people who were lame could walk. People who were blind could see And he claimed the power to forgive sin. And then he clearly told them, the Father and I are one. That's pretty clear. (laughs) God the Father and me, Jesus, are the same. And for that, they were going to kill him. That's what really got them upset, for sure. That for them was blasphemous. It's like, you can't claim to be God, but... He could because he was. <laughs> he was. Yeah, and there's there's one more evidence that Jesus is God too, and that's these "Thus saith the Lord" statements uh, in the New Testament. We see in translations that would say "Verily, verily," made from the word "veritas" or "truth." And, you know, truly, truly, I say to you. Every time he would repeat that, he would mean "Very truly, I tell you." Those phrases are really important. And the writer of Hebrews, who shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies that we've been talking about and is the final word spoken by God, was showing us how to be reconciled with God, demonstrated how Jesus behaves as God. Because everybody else was quoting somebody else. They would quote the prophets. They would quote the rabbis. But Jesus spoke as one with authority. And people even said that. They would say, this man speaks with authority. How could he speak that way? Because he is the authority. (laughs) He can say, thus saith the Lord, like a prophet would have if God were speaking through him, because it was God specifically speaking. He was the final word, literally speaking God's words to the people he was coming in contact with. Look at some of the other writings, even from some contemporaries, and we have to answer the question, was Jesus just a good teacher? Uh Now, if we look at C.S. Lewis, who's one of the most brilliant Christian minds of the 20th century, mm-hmm. he put an end to that, or answered that question in a way that there's really no doubt. And this is what he wrote. 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. And you must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Wow. It gets back to that same question that Christ asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. Man, you uh, you want to ask C.S. Lewis, don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, and you got to make your choice. Yeah. And if he's just a good teacher, but not what he said he was, then he would be a liar. Yeah. And that's not a good teacher, and it's certainly not a good moral leader. Mm-hmm. And then... There's no morality in claiming to be equal with God if it's not so. I mean, that would be an immoral statement. That would be, again, that would be a lie. You know, a lot of people over time have claimed to be God or to be Jesus. In fact, it's a very common theme in in TV and movies. Mm -hmm. But we don't remember those people because it wasn't true. Right. You know, we look back across 2,000 years and Christianity is still going strong. So there's got to be something different in that equation. Yeah, Jesus stands out head and shoulders above anybody who made that kind of claim before. Joy and I watched a really interesting movie. I think it was called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Um, They claimed each of them to be messiahs. Very fascinating uh, movie. And it really happens based on true story. And a doctor, a psychiatrist, got permission to get all three of them together because he was curious how they would relate to one another. So they were in the same place together at the same time, each claiming to be the Messiah. (laughs) Very bizarre. But clearly, I don't even remember their names. I just remember that they claimed something that we clearly saw was patently false. And yet, you're right, Jesus, who has continued to be the person who founded, because of his resurrection, this faith called Christianity, which is persistent today, with millions of believers, something's different about him than about those people that were in the insane asylum. You know, as we're here today, it's actually the Monday after uh, Palm Sunday. This is Easter week or Holy Week, as some would call it. And we look back on the incidents of that week, and we see so much of what went on was not supernatural at all. I mean, we look at, there's a historical record outside the Bible that talks about a lot of the things that happened in this particular week. As we recount some of those things, we see that it is just normal human activity. I mean, say normal. I mean, the first one we talk about is how Judas betrays Jesus. That's maybe not normal, but it's certainly not supernatural. Yeah. You know, goes to the Pharisees and says, I'll tell you where Jesus will be in just a little bit and you can go arrest him. So the Pharisees wanted to see him dead. We talked about him because of the the blasphemy, claiming to be God. Um, That really set the Pharisees off, and they were ready to do away with him. 
but they didn't have a legal way to kill him under the Jewish law. And so they sent him to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. Pilate took a look at it and said, he's blameless. There's nothing here that I can convict him on. There's no reason for me to kill him. And they work through a few more things. And finally, he just trades him for the murderer or the insurrection as Barabbas mm -hmm. and ends up crucifying him. He died. Mm -hmm. The disciples took him down off the cross and put him in a tomb. It was a Sabbath. They couldn't finish the process. But to them, he was dead. There was no question. They knew that he was dead. The next scene that we see, the women are coming on that morning after the Sabbath, and they were prepared to finish the process of burial for Jesus. Yeah. None of that is supernatural until they get there, and they don't know what's going on because the tomb is empty. Bum, bum, bum. And still, they ask who they think is a gardener, what have you done with him? Where have you taken the body? They're still prepared to go in put the spices on, finish up the whole process. Nothing supernatural at that point. And yet, there is something supernatural about that. There was a reason the tomb was empty. It was because God accepted the payment for sin and brought him back to life. That's the, the turning point of human history. And from there, we see many people physically interacting with the risen Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's not just his spirit, and it's not a, an apparition. Right. He says, put your hand in my side. Yeah. You know, this is where they stabbed me and my blood poured out. You can come touch it. And do you have a fish? Because I'm a little hungry. You know, uh, an apparition is probably not going to be hungry. So we have the human form of Jesus back after being certified dead yeah. that's supernatural <laughs> that part is supernatural and that was the finishment if you will mm -hmm. good word of of storyline a that started back in creation yeah it says i know there's going to be a fall i know i'm going to have to provide a substitution for permanent death of all of my creation so I'm going to bring him back to life because he's going to pay that final price. And when he says, it is finished, it's finished. It's done. Mm -hmm. All of history at this point is now in place. Mm -hmm. We're going to move forward from here. And that's compelling because for me, as I mentioned way early on, I think the very first episode when we said, if we could just lay it right out, put our cards on the table and somebody says, what for you would be the things that pushed you over the edge into the realm of faith to say, yes, I can trust in Jesus. And the reaction of the disciples after the appearances is one of the biggies for me. Because Simon Peter, who denied Christ three times because he feared for his own safety and his own life, he denied him and felt horrible. But then after Jesus saw him and after he had interacted with him and forgave Peter, then Peter became a very different person, bold spokesperson for the faith and for a risen Lord. What would cause these disciples to act so differently if they had not seen the risen Lord? That's a biggie for me. Yeah, and that's huge. And we look at the things that happened pretty close after of that 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And that's part of the huge difference in Christianity versus any other religion is that God interacting with his people in such a way that he indwells them and becomes part of them and gives them that power and, and changes their life Mm -hmm. and continually draws them closer to him. Peter wasn't doing that on his own. No, (laughs) because on his own, he denies him and says, I don't know him. (laughs) And then it's, I will stand before anybody and proclaim that Jesus is Lord is a risen Lord. And this is the story that goes with that. And thousands of people come to a a saving faith at that point. That's power. That's a different Peter than we saw a couple of chapters earlier. Yeah. And that's not just being inspired by a motivational speaker. (laughs) That's being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God himself, because God is real and Jesus is co-equal with God. He's God the Son. And Peter experienced that, which is what changed Peter, because the grace changes us. The grace of God is a change agent like no other. And it causes us to speak more boldly, even though we would be scaredy cats to speak out about something so crazy. But it's crazy love that did that for us. Yeah, we go back to that question. Christ asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. I mean, he gets it right. Yeah. And then circumstances weigh not in his favor. Mm-hmm. The spirit comes upon him. And then it's, there's no question. Yeah. Jesus is alive and well and living. And I don't have a problem saying he is the son of God. So, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I've come to the very same conclusion and for the same reasons. And we see these three areas, the three claims that Christ made, they're all very compelling to me, too. He claimed to forgive sins that no human could possibly forgive. He claimed to pay the penalty of sin that could be satisfied only by a holy God. He claimed that, and he claimed to be the final word spoken by God. And he did all three of those things in a way that were proved by his actions. So people can look at those actions and try to deny them if they will. But if the Spirit of God is starting to reveal that stuff to you, you can't turn your head. You have to look at them, and you have to deal with them. And so the question becomes, what are you going to do with this Christ who claims to be God? I mean, it was a shock to me when I first experienced, you know, the the claims of Christ. It It made so much sense. I couldn't say no. I mean, I have one encounter with the gospel, and it was like, boom, there it is. You know, I put my faith in in Christ as a, you know, co-equal with the Father. Made a huge difference in my life. I trust Him every day. I believe others should be able to, to trust Him just as as much, if not more. But they have to realize that you can disavow Him, you can deny Him, but you can't really dismiss Him because there's something in here that's different than any other religion, than any other spiritual format that you want to look at. There's a huge difference. It's not us working our way to God. It's God coming to us, living as us in a sinless way, and dying in our place. Nobody Nobody else has that. 
you know, it, it, nobody does. And that's a question that each of us has to wrestle with to the point that we have to ask the question, who do I say Jesus is? So perhaps we should pray about that. I would be happy to do that. I volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's do that. Lord, thanks for uh, this compelling look at the claims Jesus made. And I do pray for everybody who's listening right now that they will wrestle this out in their own spirit. And I pray that, I really pray that many, many more will come to the same conclusion that Rick and I have come to, not because we have come to that conclusion, but because you're real, that all these claims are true, that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that they have access to that same grace that changes them. They have access to forgiveness for a sense of purpose and for new life that would last forever. Oh, I want so much for so many more people to have what Rick and I are enjoying. Knowing that there's still going to be struggles, but they'll have somebody with them in their struggles, somebody making life purposeful and even making the trials purposeful, as we've discussed. So I pray for everybody who's listening that they'll take that step of faith and choose to trust Christ. Choose to place their faith in Jesus Christ, who died in their place so that they could have life everlasting. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for hanging in with us, too. And I pray you'll tune in next week for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, afternoon. Theologian. 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 Theologian.